Cedar Anderson would rather be walking naked through the Byron Bay hills than running the multi-million dollar empire he's created with his old man. Fortunately, he loves the fact that they've changed the beekeeping industry for good, thanks to one of the world's most successful crowdfunding campaigns ever. It's a buzzing episode 478 of the award-winning Small Business Big Marketing Podcast. Well, I say, welcome to a small business marketing show, where successful small business owners share their souls. To take your marketing straight to the lead, now here's your host, Mr. Tim Reed. And welcome back to your weekly dose of sweet, sweet marketing. I'm your host, Timbo Reed, you, infinitely more importantly, you're a motivated business owner ready to crank out some great marketing to build that beautiful business of yours into the empire it absolutely deserves to be. And that's exactly why this podcast exists. But if it's not enough for you, you can also grab a copy of my popular marketing book, The Boomerang Effect, that I wrote with you, the motivated small business owner, in mind. And you can grab that over at Small Business bigmarketing.com. It's $750 a copy. Worth it though, I promise you. (laughs) No, it's not. You'll have to go over there and find out how much it is. Big episode today. Mad inventor Cedar Anderson takes us behind the scenes of how he's disrupted the beekeeping industry with an incredible invention he calls Flowhive. Another motivated listener wins big in this week's monster prize draw for implementing the archetypal brand theory she learned from a recent episode. It's very intellectual, this show. And I'll let you in on next week's guest who's saving the world one coffee cup at a time. As per usual, team, there is marketing G-O-L-D and a little bit of honey dripping from the ceiling over here at Small Business Big Marketing's HQ. So let's get stuck. Right in. Cedar Anderson grew up in an intentional community, also known as a hippie colony, in the Byron Bay Hills, where he spent his time coming up with crazy inventions. Then, in his early adult years, he worked as a paragliding instructor capturing aerial footage for Greenpeace. He's also a third-generation beekeeper, and it was during a particularly nasty honey harvest that he decided there had to be a better way. So, for the next 10 years, he and his dad set about inventing a better beehive. They did, and it's called Flowhive. You might have heard of it. Now, I don't know much about beekeeping, but this thing is amazing. It's a box that looks like a dollhouse, which you can put anywhere, like in your backyard, on your veranda, on your balcony. It has windows to see the bees at work, your bees. And when you want some honey, you literally turn the tap and it comes out. (laughs) It's absolutely genius. And thanks to a really, really clever crowdfunding campaign on Indiegogo that raised $15 million, they only wanted $70,000 for a new piece of machinery. They got $15 million. Cedar now heads up an Australian manufacturing success story, having already shipped over 65,000 orders all over the world. I was lucky enough to spend a few hours with Cedar at his Byron Bay headquarters. We actually did this interview in his beekeeping suit wardrobe. It gives a good acoustic, trust me. Where he shared how growing up in an intentional community influenced him to become an inventor, where the idea for Flowhive came from and why it took 10 years to get to market. 
How he managed to create one of the world's biggest, most successful crowdfunding campaigns that crashed the Indiegogo site multiple times, and how he reconciles being a hippie with now being a multimillionaire, or a bloke with a lot of dough at the very least. I started off by asking Cedar a very probing question. How does he like to eat his honey? So... I actually like lots of different flavours of honey. People often ask me what's my favourite honey and to me my favourite thing is to have lots of different types of honey because it's such a beautiful thing to be able to share that experience and the conversations that come up around honey are extraordinary. And I like to have it not in my tea but on its own. So one cup of honey and one cup of tea. You are a purist. <laughs> I don't really um, eat that much honey. but <laughs> Really? I thought you'd live on it. I, I, no, I, I do, but not by the cup full. I was okay. exaggerating. Okay. But yeah, I do eat honey and a lot of honey. I even named my daughter, who's one and a half, Mella, which is oh, Latin for Mel Who's what? Latin for honey. I thought it was going to say something like Mel something the Melaleuca tree. Well, it, it does almost say Melaleuca, but, but that's not my favourite honey. Okay. So. I didn't want to draw that connotation. I, I personally love a nice, thick bit of crusty sourdough, lashings of butter, and a lovely honey. That would be my preference for eating honey. Mm, that is a lovely way to have honey. I often just enjoy it by the spoonful. Nice. Well, anyway, honey, we're not here to talk about that. <laughs> we're here to talk business. Thanks, darling. <laughs> Describe your childhood in what is called an intentional community. What is that, and what was it like growing up in it? So I would describe it as an ideal way to grow up. We basically had a free-range upbringing with about 40 of us living in the forest, in houses we helped each other build as we grew up, as we grew up. And to me, that was a real freedom because we could range this whole big property and we could have breakfast in the morning, then go down to the next house and say, we haven't had breakfast, we're hungry, and then have breakfast again. And also learned so much from all the different adults on the community. No TV, no distractions, plenty of time to, to think and invent. Actually, TV was banned on our community. Awesome! So it was quite a purist community. There was, there was no TV, no drugs, and a lot of meditators. Hippie? You'd, you'd call them hippies, but you'd call them a bunch of meditating hippies, I guess. Right. Would you, what, how would you describe yourself? I've, I've, in previous interviews, I've heard you talk about yourself being a naturalist, a, a Byron Bay hippie. What are, how would you describe yourself back then? So it's funny, you know, I guess myself and, and, and my friends were offspring from, from hippies that moved into the area for the Aquarius Festival. And from that became this, this real movement of a different way to live. So they almost separated themselves from society to create a new way to live in intentional communities. So certainly there's a big element of the natural there where we had our own gardens, we grew a lot of our own food, we um, kept beehives, we kept um, a whole orchard full of different fruit trees and that was quite an enjoyable thing to have th this real natural upbringing shared with a whole lot of other kids. But there's also the technical there, so I'd learn how to weld from the guy down the road who was an expert. I'd learn about electronics. My father was and still is a, a jack of all trades, being a, he could be a plumber, an electrician, a, a builder, a, a chemist, and 
the way I grew up was absorbing all of those skills and also the very farm kind of skills of how to fix water pipes and how to fix machinery. And I think at the age of two, I was covered in grease, you know, under a car with my dad. Well, you might have answered my next question, but when did the uh, inventor start to show itself in you? So at a very young age, I used to enjoy pulling parts out of old cars and trying to put them together in new ways where I would make uh, light bulbs go and, and all of that. We were on solar power, so it was we could use the power straight out of the wall to, to power all sorts of things. And uh, one day I even fell asleep with a whole contraption I'd built in my bed. The, um, the light bulb that was going melted the the uh, leg off my brother's teddy bear he still hasn't forgiven me <laughs> and uh and so it was this kind of thing where my bed was filled with all this electronical equipment and that was my happy place and so maybe inventions prior to flow hive is there anything in particular that comes to note um probably the the building of a go-kart that four oh, of us awesome. ride to school on so we got parts of an old scythe mower and and Parts of parts of anything we could find, push bikes and things, and we put them all together into a contraption that we could actually ride to school on. So there was this four-wheel drive track that you couldn't get a car down, but we could get this machine we built down with four of us on it, and then we would arrive at school, jump over the creek, and there we were. <laughs> Love it. So moving on, Flow Hive, which was ten years in the making from an invention point of view. When did that first idea to disrupt beekeeping come to you? So in my early 20s, I was keeping bees in a conventional way, harvesting the honey, selling it to the shop, and that was a lot of work. I think you'd pay yourself about $5 an hour if you added up your time, and the whole process of pulling apart the hive and taking those frames to a processing shed, which is the shed that we lived in, um, is messy, hot, heavy, sticky work and you can't help but squash a whole lot of bees in the process. And I thought, there has to be a better way. Can't we just tap the honey out of the hive? And that sparked what turned out to be a 10-year-long process of inventing the flow hive with my father. So really you did, at that point, in ten, 10 years, at the start of that 10-year process, you did sort of agree with the old man, we're going we're gonna to disrupt beekeeping, we are going to make this easier. And was it really just for yourself or did you sort of have the view of you'd love to turn this into a really big business? It was like, wow, imagine if we could. Ah. Imagine if we could invent a better way. Yeah. So I started off myself trying to, to make prototypes and I was, make, I was getting somewhere, but my father actually joined in and came up with some very pivotal ideas in how to make the whole system a lot better. I've never invented anything, Cedar, so I'm just interested to see, understand, what does that 10-year prototyping process look like? Are you building things out of things in your shed? Are you, I think at one point 3D printing came along, which must have been a bit of a game changer for you, albeit expensive back then. Do you just, are you just kind of nailing things together and testing them out? So I think it's a lot of stubborn, blind persistence right? and this optimistic idea that, of course, I can make it work. And with each failure, it's like 
not a fail, it's what can we learn for the next prototype. And it's an interesting one because it's not like you can sit overnight and come up with the new toaster. This involves the bees. So I'd make a prototype, put it into a hive, and I wouldn't know whether the bees liked it or whether it was useful for three or four months until the bees had, had decided yay or nay they weren't going to use it or not. Ah, oh, yeah, okay. So there's quite a, a large gap in between each so, idea. So it's a really long feedback loop. Yeah. So I was still working my day job at the time and just trying different prototypes and making a big mess in the kitchen all the time. Yeah. Why hadn't someone else done this? I mean, you say beekeeping is hot, heavy lifting, you're getting stung, all these things. Why had no one else previously gone, this needs to be addressed? It can't go on like this. You know, since we have actually dug up a few old patents of attempts of people trying to achieve exactly what we managed to do. And it's interesting looking at them because where they got to was some of the things that I tried and failed with. So there was really old ones with crank handles and suction hoses going into the hive to try and suck out the honey. Of course, I tried things like that. I tried little vacuum systems. I tried, I tried um, piston plungers going down cells. I tried all sorts of things to get honey out of the hexagon matrix that the bees make. Mm. But the surface tension and viscosity is such that it won't actually come out, even if you cut the capping off, which is the wax they put on the front, and cut the back off the cells, and then put the hexagon matrix of honeycomb on its side. It really doesn't want to come out very easily. Mm -hmm. so, so it's actually quite hard to do. And then one morning I woke up and went, hang on, maybe it doesn't have to be hexagon cells all the time. Maybe it could be hexagon cells when the bees are filling it with honey and then change into something else when it's time to harvest. Oh, did you, an aha moment, an epiphany. It's one of those moments where you're already scribbling on a piece of paper before oh, you've even gotten out of bed. Oh, wow. Now, you and your old man have an awesome relationship from what I can tell. He's, you know, you both think in the same way. Describe that part of the journey. It's amazing to have somebody who has the brain kind of wired in the same way. So he can just make one hand movement and I've already got what he's talking about. And also the same kind of understanding of, of mechanics and electronics. And so there's not this, no, that can't work. It's like, oh, I get what you're talking about. And that was really important because it allowed us to move very quickly in order to, to make changes and come up with solutions to what we were doing. You've, you, I'm going to jump ahead, but you've, you've created a multi-million dollar business now. How do you protect that relationship with your dad? You know, my dad and I sat there. We did some figures on what would happen if we captured 1% of the beekeeping market in the world one day. And the mind boggles at the figures that come out of that. And this was prior to launch. And... And... Um, I said to my dad, I would throw it all away if it stands between us, if it affects our relationship. The relationship between us is that important that it means much more than having the business, having the money and so on. Has that been tested? Um, we don't tend to have big friction points, actually. Because you, you avoid them? 
at the risk of the business or because you just don't have you, your incredible business owners and managers and things just go well? There's a few reasons, I think, and one is we have a fantastic relationship just generally. In fact, all of our family do. And the other kind of aspect is, I guess, he's stepped away from the management of the business so much and, and basically lets me call the shots. And it was, I guess, my baby from the beginning, so that's the natural progression and I'm in here in the office every day and he comes and goes at the moment he's on tour around around North America and he is playing that part of the face-to-face and traveling where I've got young kids I like to stay at home I don't want to miss a week of their important young life. Has your dad become a bit of a b-rock star? Look, he has. He's spoken on stage with Obama. He's, you know, he's, awesome. he's travelled around. He's, he, um, he gets big speaking events. And um, I do, from time to time, get, get dragged away to one of them as well. Have you done a TED Talk? So there's all of um, that side of the business mm-hmm. as well, which is, is travelling and talking and, and, and so on. But I tend to do less of it simply because I've got blinkers on we have to, you know, get the next thing over the line that we're doing. Let, let's come to that, what it's done to your, your personal brand and, and, and what your dad's up to. So you, at the end of this 10-year process, you crack the code, the flow hive. You've you finally figured out how you can, anyone really, can easily now keep bees and create honey and access the honey really easily. Just really briefly, because we have a business audience, not a beekeeping audience, although there might be a slight little Venn diagram there where the two cross... How does the flow hive work? So the flow hive in the bottom box where the bees are raising their young, the queen's laying her eggs, there's thousands of bees doing the normal thing, is actually pretty much the same as a conventional hive. Mm -hmm. And also needs the same care that bees always have have uh, needed. So you still need to get in your bee suit and inspect them from time to time, make sure they're happy and healthy. Then we've come along and put a box on top which has our flow frame invention in it. The bees move up, they cover all the parts in wax, they draw their comb out, they fill them full of nectar and the difference in those combs is from the outside of the hive you can come along with what looks like a big allen key, insert it into the top of the frame, turn the handle and the honey flows directly out into your jar with zero processing and it's ready for the table. It's just perfect for the modern world. We want we want everything instantly. And you've addressed that, which is kind of weird because you come from a world of hippies who operate slowly and are happy to do the hard yards. Yeah, it's funny. I guess <laughs> I've got that technical side. I love I love technical stuff, but I also you know, I could really just run off into the forest, take off all my clothes and disappear as well. Yeah. I, I'm a naturalist and, and I love the, the tech world. Yeah, lovely. So, okay, flow. you've got the flow hive. And by the way, I should say, the flow hive looks like a little house, right? I mean, a, a, t- a standard beekeeping, excuse my ignorance, but box literally looks like a box, doesn't it? Whereas you've turned these things into to little, they almost look like doll's houses, dare I say. So we've tried to build in as many benefits as possible. One yeah. thing is the aesthetic. People love to have something beautiful in their garden. And then what we've done is put little windows on the side that you can actually look in and watch the bees make their honey. You can see their tongues awesome. filling the cells with nectar. 
and see all the different colours of honey and different flavours they're bringing in mm. to the hive. And it's had all these offshoot benefits, like you can harvest single frames to your jar and isolate many different flavours from the one hive, which is something that wasn't really possible before. Mm -hmm. So it's brought about this extra piece of enjoyment where you can sit there with your family and friends behind the hive, enjoying the honey harvesting experience and tasting a range of flavours that you would have never bothered to isolate yeah, in a conventional fashion. Okay, so you've cracked the code and it, you looked at Dad and go, we need to do something with this, we can't just keep it to ourselves. We have a business in front of us. You decide that crowdfunding is your way of not only getting your first f few orders, I say with a smile on my face, uh, and, and financing the whole manufacturing of it, as opposed to finding an equity partner, as mm. opposed to going into debt. Um, mm. You've gone down mm. the crowdfunding track. Why? So, of course, we were looking at different paths to market, and I had been following Kickstarter, and I saw this thing called a glyph. I think it, that was the first thing I saw, which was a little stand for your phone that just helped connect it to a tripod. And what they did was put out for the orders before they'd manufactured, before they'd had to stump up any money. And me, living in a shed with no money, and my dad, pretty similar, we didn't have the funds, really, to throw at... The, the, the what I perceived as the more risky process of putting a whole lot of money down hoping it'll pay back in spades one day. But having said that, we did our due diligence, we talked to inventor help, we, we, um, we had people telling us, no, you don't do crowdfunding, you'll, you'll need to, to partner with this New Zealand company and, and build up that way and test it out in a small corner of the globe and spread country by country and that's the way you have to do it. And I kept going, no, by the time we put out our first video, the whole world's going to know. We have to do it on a global scale. And we don't have any money to do that. So crowdfunding to me was the obvious way to go. And you chose Indiegogo because? That was quite interesting. We chose Indiegogo because we um, originally advertised our teaser, we dropped our teaser video on Facebook and got a million views in the first 30 hours and life hasn't been the same since. So, so just explain that, this is before you put up your Indiegogo page, yep. you've put a, a, a simple teaser video on Facebook, you haven't even set up Indiegogo at all, you're not linking to that, this is just saying hey, yep. we've invented something. So the strategy was, and at this point, gearing up to launch, I started to rope in a couple of, of mates and my sister had been putting together the crowdfunding video. Which, uh, which had been working on for like a year. And the, my couple... Sorry, you'd been working on the crowdfunding video for a year? Yeah, because we would go, all right, this is going to happen. We're going to get the first honey jar coming out of the hive. Yeah. and fly my sister up from Melbourne. I'd turn the handle and it would break. I said, and go, oh. Okay. So it was this slow process of, of um, then making videos to, to share... Uh, through non-disclosures with, with um, key beekeepers to find out whether they were interested and so on. And that was part of us finding our market. Mm -hmm. We invented thinking that it would be the commercial market that would grab and run with this. But as we started to, to test prior to launch, we realised that it was the home market that was like, when can I have it? Whereas the commercial market is like, oh, but how am I going to, oh, I've already invested a million dollars into my processing plant. I don't know if I can, mm -hmm. you know. So, so you put this teaser video on Facebook. Yep. A million views within what period of time? 
30 hours. So I stayed up all what, night what watching, a validation. watching this happen. So my suspicions were confirmed that the first time we dropped a video that it would just take off virally. And we, we started a Facebook page. A, a dear friend of mine, Sadi, was helping me do that because I wasn't really even on Facebook, despite being a techie and building websites for people in the past and so on. I wasn't really a part of that, that social media world. And so we had about a 1,000 likes on a page, just generically um, getting likes through posts over a few weeks, and that was our audience to drop the video to. A strategy was, we'd put up a video, we'd send traffic to a landing page, we'd collect their emails, and then have a list to launch with, rather than starting with nothing. So in my mind, I wanted a thousand emails and a thousand Facebook likes before we were ready to launch on crowdfunding. But we committed to a date because we had advertised in magazines and in the press. So we had a whole strategy here. Drop that first first uh, teaser video which basically said hey this is what we've invented if you want to find out more put your email in here and it just took off like mad and just on that because i mean everyone wants a viral video for their business Mm. okay you've invented something that clearly the market was was crying out for maybe they didn't know it but they were but a million views in 30 hours was the video beautiful i'm guessing the video was beautifully produced what particularly was it that uh, I'm guessing you didn't have tens of thousands of followers on Facebook at this point in time. No, we only had a thousand likes <laughs> on our page, which we'd gotten in in, in the, the few weeks prior. So just a perfect storm of great production values, a great idea, well presented, and some some influencers got hold of it, shared it, and the virus begun. The amount of sharing was just unbelievable. People were. Share a lot more shares than we were getting likes. They were just share, 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 awesome. share, and that's why it took off. And I guess we struck a chord with people. We struck a chord that you can turn a handle and and shortcut this whole long process that was once the the conventional way of harvesting honey, and also something you can do in your backyard. Mm. Humans are crying out for connection to our food sources to be able to do something in their backyards on their rooftops and and so on even in the city so i guess what we represented was was the um the window farm but you get honey out of it at the turn of a handle so along with that is the plight of the bee and bees have been in the media extensively over Mm. the last five even ten years where humans have recognised the important part that bees play and all the pollinators Mm. in our food chain. So there was all these things lining up together to to make it popular, but of course you could try as hard as you could to engineer that and never get that response. So off the back of your teaser video, you've got how many email addresses? So we had a week to launch since that time and we had 70,000 emails on the list. awesome. And like... 50,000 Facebook likes. Right. And we were ready to launch on Kickstarter, is, is what we advertised. Ah. Day before, Indiegogo comes knocking and says, hey, we can, we can look after you here. We can give you uh, US currency, which you're going to need. We can, we can um, drop our fees. And they basically poached us 
from the Kickstarter platform which we were ready to go on. Hadn't all your advertising, your teaser video and everything directed people to Kickstarter? Well, it was quite a big risk, right? Because in the video we said Kickstarter, but it didn't have the link yet. And we then had to write back to these 70,000 emails and say, we're changing to Indiegogo. Of course, we got all these responses straight away saying, you've shot yourself in the foot, what are you doing? And um, funnily enough, it was, it was by accident that we put that email out because we hadn't decided yet. But we sent an internal email between the few of us working and, and um, it was a test email to say, if we make this decision, here's the email ready. And a uh, social media guy went, oh, wow, they've made the call and quickly oh. put it on. So before we knew it, the change had already happened. Right. Oh, that's not a bad thing. <laughs> and then I stayed up all night putting the page together. Okay, so just to be un understand that, because you've, you've spent a whole lot of time putting together the Kickstarter page, you've then gone, no, we're going to Indiegogo. I imagine the fields that you have to complete and the yep. content you have to populate it with are similar. Yeah. Yeah, so you spend the whole night mm. getting that ready, and at some point the next day you hit the big go live button. Yeah, so we thought we'd have to, to try hard to get media for our invention. And... Ha. Huh. We, we, uh, we decided that um, we would go to a capital city. My grandfather lives in Canberra. He's got beehives on, on his veranda. So we thought we will go there and invite the ABC, which they, they came, and we would launch our campaign live on camera. And that, that was a good strategy. However, it was a bit complicated because we, we, we actually shipped flow frames full of honey on the plane down to Canberra and it was too heavy so we had to take off the suitcase. So there's this raw bee box dribbling honey all over the <laughs> conveyor belts and we're going, oh my God, is that even going to arrive? <laughs> and, uh, and we got there and we put it on top of his hive and, and we were able to, to have the, um, the media come in for the, to show them how it worked and also for the go live moment. Crowdfunding was the way you raised the money. Now, here's some stats, Cedar. I just put such a big smile on my face. And I know you've told this story so many times. I just And I've watched it and read about it a number of times, but hearing it from you is just awesome. Your target was $70,000 to buy a bit of equipment for your, for your Indigo, from the Indiegogo campaign. You raised that in 10 minutes. Your total raised was 15 million Australian dollars with 38,000 backers. Uh, you crashed the Indiegogo site multiple times and it's one of the most successful crowdfunding campaigns ever, if not the most successful outside of the United States. Have I got anything wrong or is there anything you would like to add to that incredible set of numbers? It was an extraordinary day watching this unfold, live on camera and press the go button. I'm still being interviewed by the ABC. Someone waves in the background, you've hit your target and I just picked up my phone and walked off camera. And that's what they showed on TV. <laughs> it was, it was, and I'd been up all night, not a wink of sleep, so I was kind of in this euphoric phase. And then, and then two hours later, we've hit a million dollars worth of pre-sales, the fastest ever campaign to run. And we're sitting there going, we've sold out again, we've sold out again, we've sold out again. What are we going to do next? What's our pricing? Can we even make all of these flow hives? We haven't even got a manufacturer set yet. And it was just this whirlwind time of trying to make decisions as fast as we could 
and communicating with the team back up here at home. I'm down in Canberra with my dad and um, just trying to navigate the speed that this was going at. You didn't have a manufacturing strategy. We had our pre-production model, we had injection moulds made. My grandfather let us, lent us money to create those injection moulds. We, we, um, we had put in patents some years earlier, so we had a whole lot of things in place, but we didn't have our final manufacturer of the woodenware or even the injection moulder that we ended up finally using for our flow frames. How long did the Indiegogo campaign go for? So we ran it for eight weeks. We actually... Um, we set it for six, but we extended it, and um, we happened to my uh, my partner was pregnant with that first child. Of course, she was. <laughs> it suddenly happens to men, particularly I think, when the first baby's coming. But in this case, it had to start a uh, <laughs> a global disruption in beekeeping. Yes, yeah. But we just went, hang on, everyone, we've got to have a baby. Um, I'll be back in two weeks. We'll extend the campaign. Uh, Literally within that eight-week period, your partner was going to give birth. And, and there we had it. Awesome timing, Cedar. The well sh- done. The shots of the little baby in hospital and the whole, <laughs> the whole thing. And there was our, our little son born in the, in the middle of crowdfunding. Your life changed. You said, you know, things were never the same after that million views with the teaser video. But come the Indiegogo crowdfunding campaign, Cedar, the Byron Bay hippie, and family would have then just been pounced upon by world media. I'm guessing you're saying the ABC are with you on day one of the crowdfunding campaign. Describe the following eight weeks and how did you, didn't you handle it? It was a really intense time. It was basically waking up early for a radio interview in the US, then on to something else, then on to something else, and then then, then driving to a studio to, to do a TV appearance and then trying to fit in managing the startup and the company all in between the, the, the media. So it was this avalanche that did not stop for months and months and months and even a full year of full-on media. And we were just holding up an umbrella and sheltering from the opportunities. And we had all the, the big ones come to our place, whether it be Washington, Washington Post, New York Times, you name it, they all came. Small business, big marketing show. We were we were featured on on uh, ten new U.S. publications every single day, and that did not stop. It was the most intense ride. We've had over a billion views on our content so far, combined in total, one billion views. Um, how how did you handle that? You uh, you, you seem you sort of seem a mix of introvert. Extrovert's probably the, not the right word, but clearly you're happy to present, clearly you're happy to be interviewed. You've done your TED Talks, you've probably done other keynotes, and so there's that mix. Mm. Did you like being dragged into the spotlight, or did you go kicking? You know, I don't mind speaking from stage. I've got history as a musician, being on stage and so on. And But the, the bit that's feels like being dragged is actually more the business management, all the meetings, all the people management. You know, I didn't even want an office, but they told me we had to have one. And then they told me that I had to go to it. Like, ridiculous. Hang on, let's get that clear. They, you got an office and you had to go to it? I know. Oh, who's advising you? I know, this is the thing. I'm, I'm seem to be taking advice from the wrong people. 
<laughs> well, I have to say, your office is beautiful. I mean, can we briefly just briefly describe it? We are on a beautiful old road at the back of Byron Bay, at the top of a hill overlooking the ocean. There, we're surrounded by flow hives, and we're in a what it was an old sort of Queenslander or Federation type home that you have turned into an office, and everyone's occupying the dining room and the living room and the kitchen. Everything's an office. It is a beautiful location. If you have to have an office, then this is a pretty good one. It's, uh, but I don't even have a desk here. I just float around and we work together as more like a big family, I guess. Like a beehive. Yeah, like everybody's shape-shifting into different roles as they're needed and um, that has its ups and downs, of course. Um, going back to the media coverage, you, you quantified you've had a, over a billion views of your content across all the social media platforms. You mm. must have had tens of millions of dollars of media coverage, I'm guessing. I guess it depends what value you put on the media coverage, I guess. A lot. Well, there is a way of doing that. I won't explain that now. That would, that would be boring. But, yeah, it would appear to me, given all the big yeah. American publications and TV networks alone, I mean, yeah. the cost for 30 seconds advertising on that would be significant. So that's incredible. So was there a moment just in that crazy eight weeks and your wife, your partner at the time, is giving birth where she's looked you in the eye and said, Cedar, I didn't sign up for this, or you've looked your dad in the eye and gone, I think that beautiful life we had back in the commune has come to an end. I think three hours into launching, my family's saying, shut this thing off. You've got to turn this off. We can't make all of those hives. This is ridiculous. And I'm like, no, hang on a minute. Isn't this what we're trying to create? And uh, so it was a wrestle from square one, but that was with my wider family, not necessarily with my wife. So, so she's always been very supportive and has put up with me inventing in the kitchen and turning everything into a big mess for years. Um, but yeah, I think that, that um, I guess even though it's so intense, we were ready to to, I guess, be a part of the business world, which is kind of contrary to the way I grew up, where money was the evil, where companies were the evil, and they still are to a large extent in the globe. But what we've realised is there's all sorts of companies doing amazing things around the world, and we can be one of those. We can be a company who has a positive impact in the world, and that's what we're trying to do now. Mm. Yeah, that's I like that. Um, so eight weeks, crowdfunding finishes. I guess at some point Indiegogo make a deposit of 15 million US dollars into your bank account, less commission. Mm. What's the commission out of interest, am I allowed to ask? Uh, yes. Um, Kickstarter is around 10% and Indiegogo was um, a bit lower. I don't have the exact figure. Yeah, right. So let's call it five or around there. Yeah. It wasn't 50. Yeah. So that money goes into the bank account. Now you've created a problem. You have to manufacture. How, how many? How many orders did you have to at the end of that eight weeks? So it was about 20,000 after the end of the eight weeks. Right. And we didn't stop. We continued in pre-sale mode on our website. Of course you did. After that. And we continued to do almost mini crowdfunding campaigns because there was there was several months before we had the first product to deliver. So we kept going. So by the time we um, were anywhere near catching up, 
we had a big backlog of orders again. So it was this um, this intense ride of trying to dial up manufacturing quick enough in order to catch our tail. So what that meant, us choosing to manufacture in Australia, was we we needed a 24-7 production line, which you probably don't get much in Australia, but we had that going for six months running, 24-7 production line. Wow. We also dialed up manufacturing in the USA because that was our... our of your orders? ...large market for us. And because uh, it would have been, I guess, it would have been against your values, I guess, to go to China. That was the easy, would have been the easy and cheap option? Cheap would be the word. Not easy. Not easy. No. And, you know, it's fraught with all sorts of issues. Yes. And we also wanted to be manufacturing somewhat idealistic yeah. in the countries where the sales are happening. Fair enough. And we've built a brand around that, around quality, around sustainability, and not a cheap China product. Did you get your numbers right? Because you would have had to set prices at the start of the crowdfunding campaign, both mm. from a point of view of buying a flow hive and delivering distribution, or did you shoot yourself in the foot? Wouldn't that be sad if you got all of those sales, uh, you get $15 million worth of sales and it costs you $17 million to deliver? Um, lucky for us, we did choose the pricing. There was a lot of hoity-toity about the pricing going back and forth between me and even uh, my uncles kicking in with their, their views on it. And lucky, we chose a price that was higher than I originally wanted it to be. Mm -hmm. And that gave us... Um, a, a, uh, the ability to come out on top, which was um, very important in terms of the longevity of the company. <laughs> you had to uh, deliver these by Christmas, right? You had a pregnant wife, new child. Yep. How far away from Christmas are we? Because all these orders are really kind of leading up to the Christmas 2015. So we're in, in April now. Right. And the crowdfunding is over and we've got to get going as fast as we can. In fact, we're already pedalling as fast as we can. And we thought, wow, Christmas is so far away. <laughs> we were just, because um, we, we were, every few months we were shifting the date on the crowdfunding page. So the first one, first ones were going to be delivered three months after that crowdfunding finished. And then we shifted it to the next month and the next month and the next month. And we thought, wow, Christmas is so far away. We'll just leave them all for Christmas big mistake, never do that. Everything bottlenecks around that time of the year. And we were doing well. We delivered our first batch on time. It's unusual for crowdfunding. Mm -hmm. Second batch on time. Third batch, we were starting to struggle a little bit. Christmas, we, we only got about half of them out for Christmas and we had to deal with the fallout from that, which was a lot of angry customers yes. going, this is my present for so-and-so and how... You know, and we're going, we're doing the best we can. We have a 24-7 production line. We can't, we cannot go any faster. And we ended up having to, you know, give gift cards to those people to put under the tree and so on and try and do our best to satisfy this extraordinary customer base who, who's taking a risk on us mm. to say what you've invented looks cool and we back it. Mm. You meet those orders, 2015's done and dusted. You then settle into... Flowhive becoming a business, right? You go, okay, we need to turn this into an e-commerce store and and really, you know, life changes again. It does. And 
and it's so complicated. Oh. It's unbelievably complicated when you drill into it. You think, oh, how hard can it be? You put up a website, you take the audits. You know. But, you know, first things, getting all of that data out of Indiegogo, which often didn't even have their address or anything on it. And uh, it was very poor data to begin with. So lucky we had a, a friend of mine, Yari, who was an experienced um, web developer and custom built a whole system to import that data and and get it in databases to work with a shopping cart system. And that was really important piece of work to do because without that we would have been floundering around not knowing what was going on. We love friends like Yari. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's still working with us today. Oh, that's awesome. How many people do you have working? About 45 now. Mm-hmm. Wow. All here? Almost. My sister's working from Berlin mm-hmm. and we have a, um, an offshore programmer, but only one, and that's it. All the rest are here in Byron Bay. And manufacturing down in Brisbane? Two factories in Brisbane, one here in Byron, and that's it now. We're oh, you're manufacturing in Byron as well? 100% Australian made. That's awesome. No more in the States? Not at the moment. It's not to say that we won't, mm-hmm. but we've made the call just to bring it all in-house so we can manage it more easily here. You uh, Do you own those factories or are they factories that do other things as well? So we own the one in Byron. Yeah. The ones in Brisbane are outsourced. What is it about Byron Cedar? I've interviewed a number of businesses from here over the years. Spell and the Gypsy Collective, the guys from Stone and Wood, the guys from uh, Brook Farms, um, I could I name three or four others. What is it about Byron that lends itself to entrepreneurship and creativity? It is quite interesting. It's, it's a really beautiful place. Yes. So it, it's definitely definitely attracts people here of all sorts and but it's a very small place there's it's not like you can go down the street and land your dream job you actually have to create it so you get a whole lot of people here making their own way in order to stay in the area and I think that's a big part of why there's so many startups here and so many success cases from uh, a creative point of view um, and I guess they create Activity comes in, I think, from um, a bit of the mentality of the wider area, the um, the, the rural living, the um, the art scene, the the. There's the a bit markets. of a relaxed nature about it. You know how they say you have a shower and ideas come. It's almost like mm. coming to Byron. It's like having a shower where you kind of take, you exhale, have that big deep breath and let go, and then all of a sudden maybe that opens up to some clearer thinking. I don't know. Could be. It's hard hard to know, isn't it? But are, are you part of a network? I know speaking to Pam at Brook Farms and Jamie at Stone and Wood and Liz at, at, at Gypsy and Spell and the Gypsy, they all are part of a bit of a, a collective group where everyone helps each other and meets occasionally and throws ideas around? Or do you tend to stay inside the, the fence? We're just starting to network now, actually. We've, we've been so head down to deliver all those orders and to build a company and to, to get all of the support we need and all of the amazing people in place. Lucky to have so many talented friends and family that were brought into the company. Mm-hmm. And just now we're realising that we need to branch out a bit more. 
you know, the avalanche has subsided and now we actually need to work to get media and so on. It's terrible. <laughs> I was wondering why it was so hard to get an interview with you. <laughs> I love it. Oh, sorry, I should say so easy. Um, well, that's interesting. Uh, you talk, what you just said feels like it's, it's a very recent problem that you're encountering, whereas the crowdfunding finished, like at the end of 2016. That's three years ago. Two and a half years ago, you're just settling into the rhythm of what will be a permanent long-term business. It's amazing. Four and a half years later, the buzz has died down and the flow-on effect from that original crowdfunding, it did take years to taper off. We're getting a whole lot of media interest for years. It's really, really fortunate, really extraordinary. And we're lucky in Australia to have the Australian story a couple of times and so on. And it's just now that we're, we're, we're reaching out and, and doing things like better homes and gardens and so on mm. to, to really um, keep the story going. So it's a different landscape to try and change your head, one holding up an umbrella, sheltering and, and being able to cherry pick mm. to, to, oh, okay, now it's time for us to actually work at this and, and be a, a normal business. It's actually really nice to be here, you know, three or four years down the track and document the story as opposed to just that cr the craziness of the crowdfunding, but to see where the dust has settled and, and what the long-term nature of the business looks like. So, so thank you for having me. Um, I want to talk marketing. Yep. Uh, what's your view on marketing to start with? Do you love it? Is it a necessary evil? So this is an interesting thing. Growing up, as I was saying, with money is the evil and companies and so on. That's why I ask. Um, I actually opened my eyes to the world of marketing through um, Andrew and Daryl, who run a program called Our Internet Secrets. So it's, I guess it's the modern day of diving into a marketing podcast, but these were workshops they were holding, and they were four-day workshops. And as part of it, they even had things like uh, blockage busting where they'd, they'd get to uh, get you to do an exercise to uncover what the story in your head is that's holding you back from, from being successful. And they'd get you to write money is and then see what comes after. And of course it's money is evil, money is all of this kind of stuff. And then they did things like now write it with your left hand and write a new story and your brain's working so hard to do this mm. and as kind of cheesy as it sounds I think it was important to do that to try and shift the mentality and allow the business world to to be a part of my life I guess. Great stuff to be able to kind of work through those blockages. I think a lot of business owners have many limiting beliefs around marketing, whether it's too expensive or too complicated or, you know, not fun. And the marketing is a really interesting thing because through that time I went to, to, to four of these workshops over four years and I also learnt a whole lot about marketing and what changed in my head is almost everything we do is marketing. I'm yes. marketing to you right now with the way I'm presenting. And that's an important shift to not see marketing as this nasty thing over here, but as 
a human interaction. And if we can create value in somebody else's life, they're willing to swap that for money. And that's the, the marketing and the sales coming together. You, you, with the you, you've nailed it. Marketing is everything and everything is marketing. You know, that's just the best way of looking at it as a business owner. A couple of specific questions, Cedar. Your product's called Flowhive. Your website is honeyflow.com.au. Why not flowhive.com.au? It's an interesting point and there's a bit of a story to it. And it went like this. I spent years trying to get that honeyflow.com domain and that was the trademark that we'd also put in. Then what happened is somebody didn't pay for the upkeep of the trademark and we lost it. And that was all as we were a startup. So we then tried for a different trademark, which was Flow. And it actually turned out to be better. Flow is a better trademark than Honeyflow. But we couldn't get Flow as a domain name because they're all taken. So the domain name stayed as Honeyflow and the brand is Flow but it's a flow hive. So it's, um, it would make sense, and we do have the domain flowhive.com, and we may even change it, but it's always this awkward thing to do where you're disrupting your, your flow yes. in, in order to, to basically make it more congruent. Well, and look, the reality is maybe down the track, whether you plan on it, you, you may have products that go beyond flow hive, and but it's still obviously bee related, so honey flow works. Flow hive happens just to, to be your flagship product, but right now it's your only product. Yeah, exactly. So we do. We already have a few. We have the flow bee suits. We have the flow frames, and we have the flow hives. Oh, well, there you go. So flow is our trademark and our brand. Social media, again, something you didn't, you weren't using a lot at all five years ago. Now, just before I arrived today, you've just spend an hour doing a Facebook Live to your tribe, which I understand you do weekly. Yeah. Is social media critical to the ongoing success of your business? It absolutely is. It's, it's what allowed us to get such an incredible sharing of what we'd done. And that was all on Facebook. And it also, the social media and the emails are our main vein. We sell 98% online uh, through those two channels and but funnily enough I still don't use Facebook personally. Good on you. May that always be the way. What do you say to business owners who say email marketing's dead? Uh, it's not dead for us so I guess um, things have changed and they are always changing and shifting and you've got to be at the top of the curve but you've also got to do what's working for you. So at the moment there's this trend of people shifting from Facebook to Instagram. So we need to get up to the times with that and focus more on our Instagram, which is one of the next hurdles for us. Do you, I imagine you have a social media manager here who looks after all that. If anybody would like to come and be our social media manager, we need one right now. Stop it, that's an awesome job. It is, it's an incredible audience, really dynamic. The whole B theme's really d dynamic, somebody in the social media space would be as happy as a pig in mud. <laughs> or a bee in a flow hive. Exactly. <laughs>
make myself laugh sometimes. <laughs> um, for, so uh, other marketing, really. So it's, it's electronic direct mails and, and social media is, is where it's at for you, which is fantastic. I mean, that's so cheap. You know, you're not running ads anywhere. You're it not- is, it is. We are running Google and Facebook ads now, and and that is a part of it, but our main vein is still email marketing and Facebook. What are you most proud of along this journey, of all the things you've achieved? Putting aside family, which I know how important that is to you, that's a given. All the things that have happened in this business since the, the crowdfunding began. What's that one thing that you sit and reflect on and it just gives you a little shiver up the spine? It's the impact we're having and that's what keeps us going. Like, why wouldn't I just go to the beach and and retire, right, at this point? Because you could, right? Could. But it's this beautiful flow-on effect that happens when you give somebody a beehive who hasn't got had one before where it's a window into a new world, opening eyes to the interconnectedness of the bees and the trees and the flowers and the myriad of life that we completely depend on. And the beautiful stories we get back of people saying, I'm putting away the insecticides, I've converted the whole block into a pesticide-free zone. And that's what keeps us going. And we're so proud to have that positive impact in the world. So proud that we want to build the Flow brand with those views and values of our environment, of positive impact, so strongly into the brand that when we're dead and gone, the brand can go on having a positive impact in the world. Nice. I like that. I've been giving some thought as to a jingle for the business. You've got a bit of dough in the bank, so I think what we should do is reach out to Paul McCartney Nice. And ask whether we can own Let It Be. Ah, lovely. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I think it's a great Australian story, as evidenced by the fact that you've been on Australian Story not once but twice. And uh, thank you for allowing me into your beekeeping suit wardrobe where we've done this interview <laughs> and taking me behind the scenes of what I just think is just an awesome business in so many ways and may it continue into the future. Thank you very much for having me, Tim. Well, there you go. Byron Bay hippie, flow hive inventor, naturalist, some would say nudist, and all-round good guy, Cedar Anderson of honeyflow.com.au. A couple of fun facts about Cedar. His neighbours include Hollywood A-lister Chris Hemsworth, and when Cedar and the family came into some money, his wonderful wife suggested that they take a trip somewhere glamorous, so he chose Fraser Island. (laughs) For overseas listeners, like that's up the road. It's like four hours up the road by car. If you'd like to see Flow Hive in action, you'll find a fun video of Cedar and myself playing with it over at smallbusinessbigmarketing.com forward slash 478. But right now, here's what grabbed my attention from that chat with the wonderful Cedar. Attention grabber number one. It was a great reminder that the very best marketing you can do for your business is to create a great product or a great service. That's where it all starts. Attention grabber number two, I love Cedar's generosity of spirit. He invited me into his world, introduced me to all his team, who I ended up having lunch with on the deck at their beautiful, beautiful Byron Bay office, which is just a house on a hill, nice house on a hill. He set up a recording studio in his beekeeping suit wardrobe for me to record the interview in and on 
And he even made time to do a Facebook Live video with me. Very, very generous. Attention grabber number three. I just love how Cedar works to the beat of his own drum. He really just calls his own shots, doesn't get flustered, and works to what I would call Cedar time. I think we all need a bit of Cedar time. That's what grabbed my attention. Whatever grabbed yours, be sure to block out some time, like some serious time, not like 10 minutes, block out enough time to go and implement one, two, three ideas. Come on down. It's Timbo's Monster Prize Draw. Oh, yes, indeedly doodly, it's time to reward another motivated listener for taking some serious marketing action. And today's winner is... Linda Michener of Perth's The Green Life Soil Company. Huh? Could be another kind of hippie type. Don't know, Linda, but, you know, The Green Life Soil Company. Reeks a bit of, bit of tree-hugging, a bit of environmental love. Nothing wrong with that. And Linda says, hey, Tim. Hey, Linda. Thanks for producing your awesome podcast. You're welcome. I like to fancy myself as a reasonably savvy marketer for our business, at least compared to many of our competitors, and always like to look for new angles on things. So when you did episode 460 with Mark Livings from the Liars Non-Alcoholic Spirits product, my ears pricked up immediately as he talked about archetypal brand theory, something I'd never heard of before. You and me both, Linda. It was a great episode, had lots of great feedback on that. Linda goes on to say, I spent a day going down that rabbit hole, completing an online video marketing program about it and it made such good sense. I believe we have done some of the things intuitively or accidentally in the past with our marketing, but now I have an awareness of this. It makes perfect sense why some of our advertising has not had the impact we'd expected. And it certainly gives us a reference point for all future campaigns we put out. Oh, that's awesome news, Linda. Another thing I've learned is to be more open-minded with the podcast episode topics. Oh, I like where you're going with this, Linda. I used to try to select episodes that I could directly relate to our business, i.e. B2C and bricks and mortar. Uh, Don't do that. However, I have learned that there's always some little nugget of gold, no matter what business or business model the interviewee represents. That's a really big learning for everyone. Do not choose... I mean, I go into these interviews and put these episodes together knowing that you're not all in the industry the guest represents, right? But there will always be learnings from that guest. You know, I think the best learnings actually come from outside your own industry, uh, whether you're B2C, B2B, P2P, people to people, you know, industrial commission, whatever you do, you will find learnings from other businesses when you listen to the show. That is my aim. Hey, thank you, Linda. That is Linda Michener, a motivated small business owner, she says in brackets, uh, from the Green Life Soil Co. And her website is greenlifesoil.com.au. Linda, for going to the trouble of writing that email to me and implementing an idea, more importantly, here's what you win. You win a Flow Hive pollinator house worth 79 bucks. Now, that is not the Flow Hive thing that creates the honey, but what it does, it's designed to house a native solitary bee and to help create pollinator corridors between our wild spaces for habitats 
affected by land clearing and urbanisation. It's a pretty impressive little structure. I saw it when I was at Cedars. Uh, you also win, Linda, boxing gloves from Fitness Enhancement worth 40 bucks. You get Jeff Anderson's video marketing course. That's 197 bucks. A $50 snack-wise sample box. You get a full range of Lies Non-Alcoholic Spirits. That's worth over 500 bucks alone. Say a skincare basin's essential pack, 79 bucks. A $50 Sendal voucher. $100 to buy some tradies undies. You get promotion on this show and a backlink in the show notes. And Google love that backlink. Hey, if everyone else who hasn't entered yet, I suggest you email me. Just send me a note. Tim at Tim Reed, reid.com.au. Tell me one idea you've implemented from this show, what impact it's had on your business. If I read it out on air, you win. Before we wrap things up, just a reminder that you'll find hundreds more episodes full of ideas to grow your business over at smallbusinessbigmarketing.com. If you're getting value from listening to this podcast, please let other business owners know about it. Send a mass email right now to your entire database of business owners. I'd love that. Next week, we catch up with another hippie inventor of sorts, Abigail Forsyth, who's the creator of Keep Cup, the world's first barista standard reusable coffee cup. This podcast was presented by me, Timbo Reed, produced by Matt Dwyer. Until next week, thank you so much for tuning in. You are the wind beneath my wings. Now, get out there and take action. <laughs>